This is Women in a Day, a podcast created to give a deep look at the daily lives of women of all kinds, from sunrise to sunset, with Jenny Halzer and Portia Hensley. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Women in a Day podcast. Today, we are here with Catherine Archuleta. On November 4th, 2013, Catherine Archuleta was appointed by President Barack Obama to be the first Latina to lead the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, overseeing the human resources management of the entire federal government. Ms. Archuleta was responsible for the recruitment, hiring, development, and support of federal workers throughout the country. Catherine began her career as a school teacher in Denver and worked in local government for Denver mayors Federico Pena and John Hickenlooper. She worked for the Departments of Transportation and Energy in the Clinton administration and was chief of staff to Labor Secretary Hilda Solis during the first two years of the Obama administration. Most recently, Catherine became a founding partner of Dimension Strategies, LLC, to assist private, nonprofit, and government agencies in mapping their strategic plans for success. Catherine, welcome. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. All right. So we're going to ask you several questions about your life and your career, but uh, this is Women in a Day podcast. And so one of the things we're really interested in is what a typical day for you looks like. Uh, I don't know that I have any typical days, but I'll describe what most of my days look like. Uh, it starts with a morning walk. Uh, we live near Cheeseman Park, so I try to walk around Cheeseman, or if I'm wanting a longer walk, I'll walk around down 7th Avenue and around the neighborhoods and look at the beautiful homes that are here in our neighborhood. And then sometimes I go to Washington Park. But I start out walking and thinking about my day and thinking about things I need to, to really contemplate as I begin my work day. Dimension Strategies has been a successful small business uh, owned by mostly women, and what we call Tony is our single white guy. Um, <laughs> and we work with major governments and uh, city governments and large nonprofit organizations and small nonprofit organizations to help them strategically map their agendas and futures. So during the day, I'll spend a lot of time just working with our clients. At night, I try to have dinner with my husband, and we spend some quiet time together, and then I spend the evening uh, getting ready for the next day, and it sort of repeats itself. On some days, I get to just relax with him, and we'll see a movie. Other times, when we have more days to enjoy, we head towards New Mexico to our second home down there. So this is kind of your, what would you say, third, fourth, fifth career? Oh, gosh, it's been many careers. I've just had this most fascinating life. Uh, I reflect on my whole life, and I think, wow, was I really a lucky person? I started out as a school teacher. I became a school administrator. I've worked for nonprofits. I've founded nonprofits. I've um, been a university teacher. I've worked in uh, corporate America. I've obviously worked a lot of years in city government, and now I own my own small business. So I've been really, really lucky. I just, I don't know that I planned this. It just happened. I'm really curious how, first of all, how did you decide to be a teacher? And then from teaching, you taught elementary? I taught, yes, I taught four and five-year-olds. Okay, so most people who teach four and five-year-olds don't go on to the type of careers that you have had. How did that happen? 
When I graduated from high school, um, I was the only uh, Latina. There were two Latinos in the whole school, and the other person was my brother. We went to high school in Aurora, and at that time, there were very, very few um, Latinos in that community. Longer stories about sort of the prejudice and racism that existed. The result of which is that my school counselor um, thought that I would Uh, really become a great secretary. And as she was counseling all of the other students, and I did well in high school, uh, she was counseling them to university. Uh, She counseled me to go to secretarial school. Fortunately, there was this wonderful woman who was the assistant superintendent, and I had worked in the school administration building. And she said, you're not going to secretary school, you're going to university turns out that she became a longtime mentor for me and helped me get to the University of Colorado and later complete my degree at Metropolitan State College. And um, that's how I became a teacher. And I don't know that I chose to be a teacher. I think it was what was available to me. She was a teacher. She was able to get me into the education department. And but for her, I probably would have been a secretary and just wasn't amazing intervention of a woman who recognized that I could be so much more. That's incredible. Yeah. She is certainly someone I would pick out in my lifetime as having an unbelievable influence. And she came up a couple more times in my life uh, to make sure that I was on the right track. Wow. What would you say that you wanted to be as a young child? Did you ever think about it, a career? People ask me that question a lot, and especially young Latinos who are planning their lives ahead, and I don't know that I planned anything. I cannot tell you that I planned any one of the things that I've done. It just seems to happen, and the other piece of it was that I've never been afraid to try something. Mm -hmm. So if a door opened and it looked kind of interesting, I walked through it. I didn't have a life plan. I didn't say, okay, when I grow up, I want to be. Because we were a very poor family. My I was my family uh, moved to, from the San Luis Valley to Denver when my sister became very ill and needed medical care. And my parents moved us into the Lincoln homes. My dad and my mom couldn't speak English. And my dad happened to have, this is the strangest story, They he was driving down the street. He wasn't paying attention in his little truck. And he bumped into another man's vehicle and they got out and they kind of started talking. And the man said to him, you know, I'm looking for a good worker. And my dad became a carpet layer and a tile setter. And that was how he began his career because some really nice person whom he bumped into with his truck uh, said, you know, you look like somebody who might need a job and I need a worker. So that set us out. My dad then became fully employed, and we moved from um, the Lincoln Homes on West Denver out into Aurora, where it was, you know, I think they bought their house for maybe $9,000, $10,000, which was a big deal then. Hmm. Uh, But we were in areas where there were very few homes, and now you look at Aurora, and it goes well, well beyond the streets we lived on. Yeah, it's it's amazing. So how long did you teach? Well, it's interesting. I taught for, um, I think I I remember it's about five years. And then I was a school administrator for three years. 
So a couple of interesting stories about that is that uh, when, as I taught, I taught at the old Elmwood and people who lived on the West side didn't recognize the old Elmwood, beautiful old school that was torn down. And the new Del Pueblo uh, school is there with the gals program. Anyway, uh, we moved into that as teachers, young teachers into that building. And then after about three or four years, can't remember, it's been so long ago, but I became just sort of um, a resource teacher and worked with a lot of schools. And I remember that our offices, I became part of the bilingual program and we we did a, a lot of different programs for schools when the bilingual program was being uh, mandated by the courts into the Denver Public Schools. And our offices were at Greenlee Elementary School and they were up on the second floor next sort of a, a classroom away from the library. And so we operated out of there. I operated out of there as an administrator for the bilingual program for about two years, maybe three. Fast forward, my daughter, Graciela Catarina Gonzalez, graduated Wellesley and then... She went to Wellesley? Yes. So did I. Yeah, she did. Oh, she did graduated she 2011. Oh, I graduated 2001. Oh, oh that's great. great. Did she School. love it? She loved it. Oh, is she here? She, well, I'm going to tell you the story. Okay. So she... Um, <laughs> I love her. <laughs> so she graduated Wellesley, and then she decided she wanted to be an educator, so she went to Brown and t- took her master's at Brown, and she wanted to come home. She didn't like the East Coast. She wanted to come home to Denver. So she applied to the Denver Public Schools, was hired immediately at... Greenlee Elementary School. And even more sort of interesting is that her classroom was the same classroom I was in when I was there in the bilingual program. That's neat. Isn't that a neat thing? We both love it. I'm sure you went to go visit. Oh, of course. And I just, I told her where I sat, where my desk was, and it was just, it was really, it's fun. Is she still there? No, she left Greenlee a year and a half ago. She and her boyfriend, Travis, have this incredible interest in, in world travel. So before they settle down, uh, hopefully here back in Denver, she and Travis have moved to Columbia and are teaching in a school in Cali. Cool. So wow. they teach English to Colombian students. I third grade still for her. She loves it. She's having the best time, but... I talked to her recently and I said, okay, it's getting kind of close. You're going to have to start thinking about coming home. And she says, yeah, mom, I think I'm coming back to the Denver public schools. And I think I need to go back to Greenlee. Mm. Oh, wow. So, so she really is committed to being she a teacher. She really yeah, that is, is committed her, to teaching. Calling yeah. Her. So we'll see what life brings for her, but she's just this amazing woman who's committed to teaching and committed to her community as a Latina and really just has just a wonderful perspective on life. So she's been a really good teacher. Uh, the school administrators always have their eye on her. But she says, you know, I really belong in the classroom. Mm, that's mm-hmm. great. So apples don't fall very far yeah. from the tree. I was going to say, we need yeah, a lot more one. of that right now, we for do. sure. So it's great to know there's people like both of you Thank taking you. that on. Thank you. So then you went on to work with Federico Pena. I did. He was our mayor in the, what, 80s, 90s? 83 was his first election. 87 was his second one. Yeah, Federico and I had known each other before because when I was in the Denver Public Schools, we both worked on bilingual issues, and he was our lawyer when we um, intervened in the case on desegregation. 
And so we'd gotten to know each other. And over the course of time, as he ran for mayor, I would volunteer for his campaigns. He decided in 1982 that he was going to run for mayor. And my husband and I were already married. And he came to our apartment. He said, you know, I just want to let you know that I think I'm going to run for mayor. I want to know what you think. And uh, Edmundo said, oh, there's no way a Hispanic can, can win. And I said, let's do it. So I, at that point, had I'd been to California, come back, and uh, I quit my job. Edmundo was uh, willing to support the both of us. And I joined his campaign for mayor. Remarkably, we won. And it was a campaign that was made up of 30-year-olds. He was 36 when he was elected mayor. I'm, I'm the same age as he is. And we surprised everybody, and I think in some ways ourselves, but we didn't know what we couldn't do. Right? I was going to ask, had you been interested in politics prior to that? Or? No, but I'd, I'd been really interested in community. I'd right. really been interested in what was important to the Latina community in, in specifically, but how do you engage community in ways to really vision or envision or, as he says, imagine what could be. And so there was this group of 30-year-olds who got together and said, we think Denver could look like this. And of course, at that time, Denver was in the doldrums. The energy crisis had occurred and the city was suffering a great deal in its economy. And so we just imagined a new city, uh, the result of which is what we're enjoying right now. We imagined, uh, you know, the airport, the ballpark, the downtown. We imagined more parks. We imagined community engagement in ways that had never happened before, because before that, it was basically an all-white male administration and um, very closed and didn't have any what, what we saw, either a vision or imagination of what could be for this great city. So it really changed our city. It Besides did. Hickenlooper, I mean, it's been all... We need a woman, but it's been all... I'll second that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just really a wonderful reflection well, I of think, our city. And I it's think, worth noting that Carla Fredericks, who was an earlier guest of our podcast, she worked for Wellington Webb also. I was just going to say that there was a group of mayors that followed Federico Wellington, certainly John Hickenlooper, certainly, who carried out that vision. We had eight tremendous years and very, very difficult years that were certainly marked by racism and prejudice against Federico as a, as a Latino. But we all just had this dream of what we wanted to create and knew that Denver needed and wanted. So we were able just to push through uh, with that. We had a lot of help from all over the community, the business community, the neighborhoods, community organizations. We all just jumped in and made it happen. Uh, we had Federico as our mayor, as our leader, but it took a whole city to make this happen, what we see today. And I think kudos to both Mayor Wellington Webb and Mayor John Hickenlooper for following that. Did you work in his administration? I worked eight years. And what were you doing for him? Oh, wow. I have a great story about that. After we won the election, of course, um, you know, you get ready and you decide who's going to be on staff. And, and Federico asked me to be on his staff. And I, he said, oh, I don't know what that'll be, but we're talking about everything right now. I'm going to tell you in a couple of days. And so in the meantime, we're moving everything in the office, rearranging the office. And a couple of days later, Federico came into my office 
And he said, okay, well, I, I, we figured out where we can use your talents and we think you're going to be really good at this. And I said, okay, what is it? He says, well, we would like you to be our lobbyist with city council because you know everybody, you've helped on the campaign, they know you, you're going to be great at that. And I looked at him incredulous and I said, Federico, I have never been a lobbyist. And he looked at me and he said, Catherine, I have never been a mayor. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> so sort of the rest is history, as they say. So I started out being council lobbyist and uh, worked into deputy chief of staff and, and ultimately became the chief operating officer, working with all the cabinet directors and working on budget, worked closely with the police department and all of the health department um, so a lot of troubleshooting, too. And I worked a lot in the communities. That's my passion is how do we make sure that there's community engagement? Because without voice, without hearing those voices, how does the city run? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a city government is about the people it serves. Yeah. And so uh, Federico was absolutely adamant about that, as well as we. that's what we ran on. And yeah. we all truly believe that. So what did you do? You didn't work for Webb. But you did work for Hickenlooper. Yeah, in the meantime, after Federico's second term, um, he was asked by President Clinton to go to D.C. to become the Secretary of Transportation. And he asked me to go with him. So I spent four years in the Clinton administration as Deputy Chief and then Chief of Staff at the Department of Transportation. Wow. So you moved your family to D.C.? Yes. Wow. Sold all of our properties and picked up our four-year-old daughter and moved off to D.C. and spent four years, four and a half years there. I spent about half a year with him at at Department of Energy as I transitioned out on a surprising, I think it was Christmas holiday. After he left transportation, he was asked to become the Secretary of Energy. We needed to come home for a number of different reasons, so I said I'd stay to transition. So I hired my replacement, helped him hire his Deputy Secretary, and uh, then Louis came back. So that was a whole different world for you. I was going to say, did you have any hesitation about doing that? Had no. you thought you would return to teaching or? No. No. You, you just rolled husband. with it? Just, no. I mean, it was just like I said earlier, sometimes yeah, a door opens and it's, you know, it's just calling to you. And I'd never, never been a city lobbyist. I, you know, never been, right. you know, the jobs I had in city government. I'd never been in an in a department of transportation. I, I mean, literally had to learn the department of transportation from the ground up. Um, by the time I'd left, we'd had four very horrific train plane crashes to to deal with, as well as a couple of um, uh, train crashes. We'd had uh, a Cuban crisis. Uh, we'd had a lot of different things. And you know, what I what I think is that I'm good at a certain skill set, and mm-hmm. that's sort of anticipating things happening or what I need to do thinking about where we need to go on um, strategically in any area that I work in. So that's a really strong skill I think I have, but I'm also a really good crisis manager. So that combination of skills I can take and I can put in any situation. Right. So when I think about the strategic planning side and also the crisis management side, that that was a good combination. All of my jobs that I had in the federal government, I'm just able to sort of think ahead of what most people can think ahead of. They live in the here and now, and I live 
about three months ahead of that. Mm-hmm. So it served me well uh, over the course of time. What was it like to be a mom of a young person? Oh gosh, I couldn't have job. done it without my husband. Did my you husband have to take just take on a lot of responsibilities. Yeah. And another sort of interesting story is that we hired au pairs from um, most from France and Spain. Each year we would get a new au pair, and to this day, we're connected with them. So if you That's can imagine wonderful. from the time that Graciela was, she was from four to nine, we had au pairs, and she's now 30, and we're still connected to those au pairs. It, they were lifesavers. And what we were really adamant is that we didn't want to put her in, in child care, so we figured out the au pair system, and it worked really, really well for us. So she has this great connection with these women who are now you know, themselves into their early 40s. And yeah. Yeah, it's really neat. Oh, that's fascinating. So then you came back to Denver. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we came back to Denver and we came back uh, to New Mexico because we wanted to raise Graciela in New Mexico um, because we, Edmundo was born in Santa Fe and uh, he wanted to be sure that she had rich roots uh, in that culture as mm-hmm. well, that sort of that tri-culture. So... We figured out a way to move, to buy a home in New Mexico, and we moved uh, Edmundo's parents in with us into a casita, which is a separate mm-hmm. home on our property, and they lived with us for eight years and raised Graciela while um, I actually commuted back and forth once again, a part of which was um, with John Hickenlooper, part of it was with, uh, as a principal in a, in a consulting firm with uh, the legendary John Parr. And John Parr was a great individual who did a lot of the planning with us in the campaign, did a lot of work with the the Civic League, and um, passed away in a car accident uh, during that time. But um, I did a lot of things during that period until I came back. I can say now I, I was recruited to go into the Obama administration. How did that happen? How did they know about you? Well, Hilda Solis was, had just been appointed the Secretary of Labor, and they were looking for her chief of staff. And a, a great woman named Kitty Higgins called and said, we're looking for a chief of staff. Um, are you interested? I said, no. I'm How not Kitty know you? She knew me from um, the days that I was at Transportation. And I said, no, but I'll help you. You know, we'll look around and let me see uh, if I can find someone for you. So we worked on that for two or three weeks. We didn't find anybody that we thought would, would do well. And so, um, she said, we're getting really down to the wire. She's, you know, she's got a lot of hearings coming up. We need somebody who could help her. And so I said, well, I could come back and, you know, just pitch in for a while and while we still continue to look. So I sort of moved back there and told Edmundo I'd be, you know, be home pretty soon. Right. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) and um, of course that didn't happen. The White House said we really need you to stay. So um, when the White House tells you they need you to stay, yeah, yeah, that's a hard. They they take you into the into the White House. They take you downstairs into right. I can still remember the room. It was right off the White House mess. And uh, Chris Liu at that time said, "We we really need you to stay." So we put a travel ban on you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so by that time, you also get invested, right? So um, well, right, yeah, yeah. Then it becomes. So I became her chief of staff, and I served as her chief of staff for 
the next two and a half years. So did your family move back? Well, by that time, Graciela was no longer at home because lots of years had passed. And then Mundo... So you had more flexibility. We had more flexibility. And then Mundo came back and he started a job at the Department of Defense. And so he uh, was really excited about that. He worked at the Air Force Force and Wounded Warriors did a fantastic Mm -hmm. job there. So we were kind of happily rolling along and I was going to be chief of staff for four years and... (laughs) Um, I get this call from Jim Messina. I don't know if you remember Jim Messina, but he was the deputy chief of staff to Rahm Emanuel Mm -hmm. when Rahm was the uh, chief of staff for President Obama. And Jim Messina was sort of, he was a tough guy. You didn't ever want to get a call from Jim Messina. Mm -hmm. But I get this message from my assistant, and she says, "Um, Jim Messina would like to talk to you. And I thought, oh, my God. There's only one reason that Jim Messina would call me is because I've really screwed something up. Yeah. So I call my staff together. I said, Jim Messina is going to call me in two days, and somewhere we've screwed up. I want you to give me white papers on everything that's gone over to the White House. I want to be completely briefed so that I can respond on any issue he brings up. And so, of course, they jumped into action, and oh I had God. all the white papers on my desk, and I had them all laid out in the time and I had them all and I was ready to read them. There wasn't a question he was going to ask me that I didn't know the answer to. Crammed to the max. I was like ready. I was ready. <laughs> so phone, uh, it just says, uh, Jim is on the phone and I, uh, hi Catherine. Hi Jim. How you doing? You know, and your, your mind of course is like playing. A Let's whole just get to it already. Yeah. yeah. If you're going to fire me, just, just uh, yeah. you, know, you know, don't, don't make drop the ax. Yeah. Don't make me. That's painful. <laughs> He says, I bet you're wondering why I'm calling. And I said, yeah, I really am. He said, well, I've been talking to John Podesta and um, the president, and um, we'd like you to consider a new job. Did and you know John No, Podesta? I know who John Podesta right, was because John Podesta was beginning to work. I won't tell you the end of the story. Okay, I won't. Sorry. So John Podesta. So John Podesta is was a senior advisor to President Obama. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we've been talking about you, and um, I'd like to I'd like to talk to you uh, about a new job. I said okay. He said, and I'll make this short because it was actually a couple conversations. But he says um, we would like you to consider becoming the national political director for the president's campaign. Mm. What? Wow. <laughs> yes. So wow. uh, a couple of conversations later, um, I agree to become the national political director for the 2012 campaign. So I left my job. I moved to Chicago in uh, June of 2011. And Edmundo stayed in D.C. And I was the national political director for Obama 2012 for 18 months wow. through the election, uh, came Did back. Did you know how to be a political director? Uh, yeah, I mean, what? I mean, you'd worked on campaigns. Uh-huh. And... Yeah, I knew, I mean, I knew, I knew, I knew a lot of people. And oh. national political directors, what they do is that they're the connection to a whole bunch of different stakeholders across the country. And of course, the campaign was really about 13 states because that's where the electoral votes were going right. to, had to be accumulated. So you're kind of the hub of the spokes. Sort of. I'm part of a greater team that's focused on how do you do field, 
but I am above the field. I'm with stakeholders, um, you know, state legislators, community leaders, nonprofit organizations, uh, special individuals, donors. I assembled a team and you know, worked on all. did sort of that political layer of individuals. I traveled literally, I think, for 12 months straight across the country. Uh, in the last months, I would I would say to Jim Messina because I we we'd have a morning phone call, daily phone call every morning. I said Jim, please can't I just come home? Said, <laughs> not yet, Catherine. Not yet. Did you enjoy the work? I love the work. I, it's I've had such great jobs. It's hard for me to say that was the best job, but it certainly is one of the best jobs I've ever had. Wow! And it to just be seems at that so level. intensely stressful yeah. and. Oh yeah, but I've had in I mean all of my jobs. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of one that hasn't been that stressful. Um, but to be at that level of mm-hmm. of politics, presidential politics, I mean that's the highest level, and it's, it may not be the most important because I actually think that local politics are even more important. But uh, to be and to be a player at that level was. Mm-hmm. Just unbelievable. And to be a Latina in that group, to re- be able to represent my community at that level and to get to know so many people who are dedicated to his reelection. I mean, obviously, those are long t- lifelong relationships. Yeah. Was, was accepting that job, was there an understanding that you would have a role in his administration? No. No, absolutely not. And in fact, I went into it thinking that I wouldn't because by this time I may, I'm ready to retire. I could... You know, I was age appropriate for retirement. And um, I went into it thinking that we would come back to Colorado. And when you get, it's, I, I, I think it was in that, I would say in the last two weeks, when we're just, we're rolling so hard, everything is happening. And the campaign was going really, really well, obviously. It was at that moment I said, I can't leave this. I, I mean, I thought I could leave it. I thought I could just say, okay. That's enough, and I could go home. Mm-hmm. So I um, shared my interest to, and to Jim, and he says, "Oh, we thought you weren't gonna, you weren't gonna stay." And I said, "No, I, I think I really want to." He says, "Okay, mm-hmm. let's think about that." And so, did you express a desire for a certain role, or no. did they just kind of tell you? No, I didn't, because I thought, I, you know, I'm sort of a utility player, um, and I just said I wanted to be. You know, I wanted to be in this, uh, obviously, at a senior level. I didn't really know what that would look like. And so sort of a shorter story is that it looked like I was going to become an ambassador. Did you want that? So the you asked me these questions, and you won't let me finish Sorry. the stories. <laughs> oh, Portia. <laughs> I'm full of stories. So exciting. <laughs> I'm excited. Thank you for asking the question, though. Um so uh, Graciela, I, I, what I hadn't told you is that Graciela had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer in 2009. She was That's diagnosed with very ovarian. young, very young during oh. college. During college, oh. when she was at Wellesley. Oh man, yeah. Uh, I spent a lot of time at Wellesley in her dorm room and uh, in other places, just showing her up for her finals. But she wasn't in remission. She hadn't had good tests. So I told Jim, he says, we, you know, we really like you to be an ambassador. And I won't tell you to where. There are a couple of different places. But 
I said, it has to be in the United States. I have to be able to work out of the United States. Because mm-hmm. if Graciela gets sick again, I need to be able to be at her side immediately. Right. I can't be overseas. So we'd figured out um, there are several different ambassadorships where you actually are in the United States it's mm-hmm. to organizations. It wasn't to the UN, just to be sure. It was much smaller than that. <laughs> I want to be clear about that. So anyways, um, so there I'm on my path to do that. And so... Um, I get a call. Uh, these calls are really just changed my life. I was going to say, right? yeah. There's Every time pattern. the phone rings. I know. There's a pattern of these calls. You said you were waiting for a call when we got here today. Let's get it. Let's, <laughs> know, let's hear it. Come on, come on speaker. <laughs> so I, uh, I got a call from a friend in the White House. She was the head of White House personnel. So those White House personnel is the office that hires all of the political appointees. Nancy Hogan. And Nancy called me and said, um, I'd like to talk to you. Can we set up some time? I said, sure. And so then, of course, my mind goes again. They're going to tell me that there really isn't it going to happen. And they're so sorry. And, you know, so I said, okay, well, uh, let's set up some time. She says, well, I'm going to have my assistant call you. And said, okay. So assistant calls me and says, okay, Nancy would like to take you to the White House mess. So now I knew that they weren't going to tell me something bad because they don't want a crying Latina in, in the White House mess, right? <laughs> it's not the place you tell somebody you're not going to do Yeah, So I knew I was okay there. So she, I went to the White House mess and she said, you know, we've been talking about you. And I said, yeah. And she said, we've been talking and the president would like you to serve as the director of uh, Office of Personnel Management. Would you please consider that? What was your first impression with that? That's a big shift to go from thinking you're going to be an ambassador to not anything at all and then to that. I don't know what I thought. I've, I, It's that same thing. I don't know. A door opened. I didn't think, oh, no, exciting? I've got to be an ambassador. Yeah, I thought, well, could I do it? And then I thought, well, yeah, I could do that. I mean, I knew government. I'd been in, by this time, I'd been you know, in the Clinton administration for four and a half years. I'd been with Hilda two and a half years. So I pretty much knew the federal government and how it worked. And because I'd been chief of staff at both of those levels, I knew what OPM did and I sort of knew the ins and outs of it. Did I know the inner workings? No, I didn't. So I, of course, came home and talked to Edmundo. And I mean, it it wasn't like you have a choice, can you do this or this? It, It was this is what the president would like you to do, and what do you say no? No, you don't say no. Depends on which president's asking. Yeah, well, no, there's only Dems would only ask me. So, of course, um, it felt challenging. It didn't seem like, oh, no, I can't do that. Sure. It was like, it, okay, here's this door, and if this is what he would like me to do, then certainly I respect and honor and, you know, I would do anything that he asked me to do. So if this is what he wants me to do, this is what I'll do. So I became the director of the Office of Personnel Manager, and I I served uh, for 18 months at the department. And um, this, is where, this is where my story becomes probably more painful for me. There's a lot of uh, people can Google this, and I'm glad to tell the story because it has a really good ending. So that door opened for me. So I'm going to tell the story about how that door opens for me. And I become the director of Office of Personnel Management. And I won't go through many of the details. But OPM's database was hacked. It's personnel 
database was hacked through a number of different ways. Um, it actually had been hacked prior to the time that I arrived at the Office of Personnel Management. And we lost the files um, for our workers. I went through five House hearings with Jason Chaffetz, who was bent not on, he was bent on embarrassing me, but he was more bent on embarrassing the president. Yeah, that's the bigger fish. Yeah, and I went through three Senate hearings. And at the end of that, those eight, I was scheduled for a ninth. And um, I had the tremendous honor of being supported by the White House through this whole process and uh, spent a lot of time with um, the deputy chiefs of staff as well as the chief of staff and all of the White House counsel. Really, because we we knew that the hacking um, was not something, an error that I'd made. In fact, it was... We, I discovered it, my team had discovered it. There was no blame there, uh, even though Jason Chaffetz wanted to picture it much differently. In any case, um, ninth hearing comes scheduled, and um, uh, the deputy chief called me, uh, and uh, she said, there's one more. And I said, you know what, Christy, let me think about this. I want to talk to it. Because what I knew, remember, I told you I have this strategic planning and yeah, you're around in yeah. a long time. You can see the big picture. I can see the big picture. And, I, and the next morning, or I said, I want to come and see you. And I went in to see her. And I said, this isn't going to end. This is between the administration and Jason Chaffetz. He's bent on embarrassing the president. And he's going to do that through me. And I want to stop it. So I'm going to submit my resignation to the president today. Of course, I say that calmly now, but if I was crying. Uh, Christy was really upset. She said, Catherine, are you sure? I said, I'm absolutely sure. Can we talk you out of it? No, you cannot talk me out of it. My husband and I have already decided. They went to, um, uh, they went to talk to Dennis, the chief of staff. Dennis said, are you sure? I said, no. I said I'm absolutely sure. So that day, within an hour, I was sitting with the president in his old office next to the fireplace. And he, I will always remember this, um, he said, Catherine, this is not what I want to do. And I said, I know it isn't, Mr. President, but it's what you should do. You need to accept my resignation. He said, what has happened to you is what makes our politics so horrible. And I said, I understand that, and I wish it could be different. And we talked about some other things. And at the end of the conversation, he looks at me as only uh, President Barack Obama could do, and he said, may I give you a big hug? And he stood up, and I stood up, and he gave me a big hug. He gave me a second hug, and he said, thank you. So... When I left, I felt like I had done the right thing. You took control of the situation. And I, and I did what I needed to do. And I tell students that I, that I mentor that when you sign up for politics, you sign up for the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you don't, always, you don't get to choose. Yeah. And there are really good days and there are really bad days. And there are really ugly days. And you sign up for all of them. And when you sign up for the ugly, 
it sometimes happens. Mm -hmm. You hope it doesn't. It happened, but I signed up for it. And so when I walked away, I felt like, you know, I had my eyes wide open. I knew that that in politics in general, in government specifically, these things could happen. And I walked away and, and I felt okay. Now, here is the most important thing, and I love it that I can tell this story on this woman's podcast, is that one day later, my girlfriends, who knew that this was very painful for me, bought an airplane ticket and sent me to Belgium, Brussels, Belgium, for five days and said, don't come back <laughs> till at the end of the five days. Turn off your phone. You will be in a place where there is no web mm-hmm. connection, internet connection, and enjoy. The end of that five days, I had not read, I had not seen, I had not heard anything. When I came back, I was on to my next life. And it had great. Largely blown over and... Well, it's well, I mean, not but, that easy, but, but, but yeah. yeah. And frankly, uh, in the long run, it's inside baseball. Uh, And now I look back and I see, I mean, every day we hear about another hacking of 2 million, 10 million names. We were at the beginning of it. And I will say that it is, even though it was painful, it was ugly getting there to, you know, getting through that. It was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Because it was time for me to come home. And I came home. Mm-hmm. Graciela was back here. She was teaching. And I'm doing exactly what I should be doing. So when people say, oh, my God, oh, my God, you know, you should feel, yeah. I said, you know, I don't feel bad at all. I walked into that position with my eyes wide open. I did the right thing. And now I'm doing something I enjoy just as much or even more. And it's here in my hometown in Denver. I'm working in the community again, and I'm focused in on sort of the things I thought about when I first started teaching, is how do you engage community? How do you give voice to people who need to have voice? Mm -hmm. How do you impact the lives of the people you care about and the people they care about and the people they care about? And so that's where I'm at. And so I think I've been on a path. I didn't actually ever know where that path was leading to your first question. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know when I graduated from Metro that I was going to be on this path. But here I am. And I had the most incredible experiences all along the way. What would you tell that counselor who told you that you were destined to be a secretary? If you could have a conversation with her today, what would you tell her? I think I would tell her that uh, I would say, see, I'm so much better than you thought I was. And I think this happens every day in our school system. It does. Young girls are told every day that they can't be who they are. Yeah. And that happened to me. And But for Miss Dalton, it would never have happened. That woman set me on my path. Have you tried to be a Miss Dalton to people? I do. I mentor many, many people. I, mean, I mentor uh, Latinos all across the city and all across the country. Um, I'm absolutely dedicated to it. Um, I think that my job is to open doors for other people, mm-hmm. other women in particular in my community. I'm passionate about that. I've never lost sight of my commitment to the Latino community and to women, you know, whether I'm, I'm working with them directly or in the 
organizations or, you know, just even one-on-one, it's, it's, it's a gift they give to me to be to let me be able to do that. Wow. What is the best advice you've ever gotten? It was from my father and, uh, it's a very simple one. And it's one that I know many of you, the listeners follow and you follow It's is that you need to treat people like you want to be treated. And if you can continue to do that, it helps you even in the most painful times to try and understand why someone does something that you have to step back and say, you know, how would you like to be treated? And to sort of look, look at why they're doing what they're doing and try to understand that and hope that you can, you can be better or you can be helpful. You can be, you know, you could be sympathetic, empathetic to that individual. And sometimes you can't. I understand that. I'm not Pollyannish about it. And sometimes you just have to walk away mm-hmm. and say, you know, that's not something I can help you with. But I, what I try to do is figure out, can I help? Can I, can I try to understand? Because that's what I would want somebody to do with me. Right. That's excellent advice. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Well, that's a question I get often as well um, in terms of what is my advice. And I think it's not to be afraid to try something new. Any of the jobs I've ever had, I never knew I was going to have, except for teaching, because I trained for that. Mm -hmm. But I just say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, because you can do anything. I've certainly done things I've never thought I could do. And I just wasn't afraid to try it. And I can do anything for two years. I could do, you know, I could try anything for two years. That's always said, I can just do that. And so I've had this incredible life because I've been willing to do things that I didn't know how to do. That's great. It is. I think in our society, especially right now, it's very hard to think of it as a long game. So when you say two years, you're right. It's, that's the blink of an eye over the course of a lifetime, but for so many people, it seems like an eternity. But when you see, you know, when you can see far ahead like you do, that's a great perspective to have. And what an adventure. Yeah. Life as short as it is, is you got to have lots of adventures. And I think when I'll give you an example is when John Hickenlooper asked me to lead the Democratic National Convention planning, I thought, oh, Lordy. Yeah. Here that in Denver, that was a lot, but yes. it was, and Democrats will say to this day, it's the best convention they've ever been to. And why? Because we engaged community. We made sure that everybody had a part in it yeah. and the delegates loved it. So it's again, just bringing a skill set to a situation that may be new, different, unusual. And you just keep bringing those skill sets. Yeah. Wonderful. That is. Thank you so You're much, welcome. Catherine. My this pleasure. Such a joy to talk yes. to you. Thank you. So Please insightful. go to our website, womeninadaypodcast.com. You can see photos of Catherine. You can learn more about her and, and her company. Yeah, Dimension Strategies. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you to Tony Tarbox, our editor, and Hillary Blair for lending her voice to our intro. Thank you so much, Catherine. You're welcome.